You ever watch this guy on television? You all were not telling the truth, and you should not be trusted. Congressman Matt Gates, thank you for what you yeah. did for your country tonight. Be offended with the Democratic whip, not House Republicans. Like a machine, Matt Gates. Welcome to Hot Takes. This is Congressman Matt Gates. We're almost at a thousand ratings. So if during this episode you wouldn't mind heading on down to your phone, giving us that five-star rating, we'll be at a thousand in no time. Let's talk about the news. And the news is coronavirus rising. That's what we see from uh, the media. That's what we see from positive test result gross numbers. It's even what we're seeing from the positivity rate in the state of Florida. But does that tell the whole story? I was interviewed by Charles Payne. Here was my reaction to those questions. Our governor is going on offense against this disease. We aren't merely setting up testing sites and having like the field of dreams approach that if we build it, they will come. We're going into underserved areas, into the communities that support our agriculture industry. We're going into prisons. And so, of course, the more you play offense, the higher your positivity rate will be. But then we want to lash that data to what Dr. Burks has called the best contact tracing system in America. America that the Florida Department of Health has been able to utilize, then we can get our contract ta tracers to actually track these instances right. down. The worst case would be just uh, having these positivity rates go undetected. And so that's why I'm very confident in the Florida approach. So really, if you're doing things right as a state, if you're going into the areas where they might not come to a drive-through test site, uh, they might be in more confined spaces, closer living spaces, higher living density, if you're proactive, you'll actually find a higher rate, but with good contact tracing, I'm confident we're not seeing a shutdown again in the future of the great sunshine state. China is not our friend and Zoom is not our friend. Zoom is a company that is influenced substantially by the politics of China and the oppression of China. And following this coronavirus pandemic, I feel like every time I turn around, someone's inviting me to another Zoom get together, Zoom conference. And I mean, we are doing everything in our office to try to get away from uh, reliance on products and particularly technology products that have dual use and that are influenced by China. So there's this report in Axios uh, entitled Zoom closed account of US based Chinese activist to comply with local law. And it is the story of a U.S.-based prominent activist and his account being closed as a consequence of an event commemorating the 31st anniversary of the June 4th Tiananmen Square massacre. I mean, that, that is really quite something, that they would bow to that pressure. It shows who Zoom really is, and it should motivate us to develop the platforms and to use American platforms that are not susceptible to this type of political pressure, whether it's from Silicon Valley or whether it's from Beijing. Uh, I don't think that the four corners of speech should be dictated in this country. I think that we have to envision the vindication of the values that underpin our First Amendment rights through the lens of an environment where a lot of folks in Silicon Valley want to dictate what can be talked about, what's taboo, and then even international forces that own the tech that's been utilized want to put their thumb on the scale. We have to love America enough to ensure that we can accommodate a robust debate within this country and that we're not subject to interference either here at home or abroad.
If you thought the Machia, La Cosa Nostra, was bad, wait till you hear what I have to tell you about the internet giant eBay. That's right, eBay will cut you. They, they are serious about terrorizing their critics. There was a couple in Massachusetts that were running an online newsletter critical of eBay, and you will not believe what eBay did to them. Here's the story. It's coming to us from Reuters. Jonathan Stemple reporting six former eBay employees charged with cyber stalking a Massachusetts couple. So if you if you go and create an effective online newsletter criticizing eBay, uh, let me tell you what what they've been charged with: a determined, systematic effort to emotionally terrorize a couple with anonymous email threats and deliveries such as live cockroaches, a bloody Halloween pig mask, a funeral leaf, and a book on surviving the loss of a spouse. That is some cold, cold stuff to send to a married couple, a book on surviving the loss of a spouse from eBay. I wonder if they even sell that book on eBay. But I mean, so who's sending this? The defendants include eBay's former senior director of safety and security, James Baugh, 45, of San Jose, California, and former director of global resiliency, resiliency, I'd say, David Harville, 48, of New York. So these, these like Gen Xers in their 40s are running around sending bloody pig masks and books on surviving the loss of a spouse. On, on one of the emails they wrote following the delivery of the pig mask, they wrote in all caps, do I have your attention now? Question mark, question mark, question mark question mark. Everyone's entitled to a fair trial. We're innocent until proven guilty. But if you ever wonder, like the links these tech companies will go to when they get into this, this like sorcery mentality that everything that they do is justified by the continuation of their own existence. It's pretty dark where they'll take you. Bit on that eBay. Some breaking news, there's always a need to vindicate our Second Amendment rights, and even in the most pro-Second Amendment of governments like President Trump's, there are occasionally folks who try to make it more difficult to acquire the things that shooters need and gun owners need for safety and for the unique circumstances that an individual may have. I know we worked hard on the Hearing Protection Act so that we could have uh, less uh, impact to people's uh, ears and eardrums as they're firing. Uh, unfortunately, that became something that Democrats in the Senate blocked, even when we uh, we had a tremendous amount of support in the House of Representatives uh, in the last Congress. But now what we find is that uh, the ATF is actually making it very difficult for people to have arm braces. They are changing standards and changing rules. And, you know, my mother's in a wheelchair. I'm, I'm sensitive to people who might have a disability where an arm brace might be helpful. And I'm particularly frustrated when our government at the administrative and executive level goes beyond their, their grant of authority in our constitution and in our federal statutes. Nothing gives anyone at ATF the ability to constrain the use of arm braces for firearms the way that they're attempting to do. So the breaking news is this, I'll be sending a letter to the Department of Justice asking for a review of the decisions made by ATF and asking that ATF stop in this crazy effort to limit access to arm braces for people who seek to have them for their firearms use. Donald Trump is president today 
because of the millions of Americans who are stuck in the middle. He talks about them as the forgotten Americans, but I think of them as the folks who, you know, aren't rich enough to have maybe the job that's got a gold-plated health plan or the ability to just pay cash for whatever medical need comes up, but also not poor enough to take advantage of every entitlement program that provides free health care. And so they're in, that, they're in that tough middle. You know, these are the same Americans who, you know, maybe they can't afford the best private school uh, for their children, but they're also, you know, not on the free and reduced lunch program. Uh, and so they're making college tuition and children in uh, just regular K-12 schooling work uh, with an American family. And these are the folks I worry about as I see police reforms that are invariably going to lead to two different standards for policing in America. Uh, I worry that if we pass reforms that keep police officers in their car, uh, keep them out of a proactive mindset, reforms that inhibit the engagement that community policing would define. You know, I, I think what will happen is that the, the folks that have, you know, a lot of money, uh, people who can afford their security are going to pay for it. You know, it's human nature to lean into Maslow's hierarchy of needs and security is sort of the, the bottom of the pyramid in that hierarchy. And so rich people will will end up with like, you know, imagine the types of of rent-a-cops that roll around, you know, Nancy Pelosi's neighborhood, uh, the other types of, you know, gated communities where where very wealthy people live. Uh, right now they have security that's sort of, you know, low grade. I think you're going to start to see like an echelon of security services provided for like your high-end homeowners associations, your high net worth individuals, your high-end condominium associations, and it's going to be like some, you know, former military, former, like, you know, high-end, tactically trained law enforcement. And those people are going to be able to provide real physical security to wealthy Americans for real money. And then I think that, you know, if you're in, if you're, if you truly have nothing, maybe you have less to worry about, that your stuff's going to get taken, that your house is going to get broken into. But those folks in the middle who, you know, they've got they've got nice things, you know, they live in places that you know, maybe it's not the best neighborhood, but uh, it, you got a, you know, a, a lot of stuff that somebody would love to walk off with if they could just catch you in a, in an unguarded moment. And it's those Americans and they're white, they're black, they're Asian, they're of every background, but they're middle class, they're blue collar. A lot of them live in, you know, transitioning neighborhoods. And it's just going to be really difficult for folks who um, feel like the policing that taxpayers are funding to support all of us uh, has been constricted to the point that it's no longer useful. And, it, and it's that lens through which we have to evaluate these policing reforms that are, that are coming forward. And I do believe that we can make reforms to improve policing. You know, I'm not going to defend the chokehold. I think that there's some interesting technology and better training on uh, various types of vascular lateral pressures that don't constrain the windpipe. If there's a better way to do that, I'm all for it. I don't love no-knock warrants. 
You know, if someone barged into my home and didn't announce their presence, that would be a threat to me. I would, I would, I would feel the need to vindicate my rights under Florida's Castle Doctrine and protect my home. So, uh, you know, I think that that those are are useful reforms. I don't believe that there's been any adequate defense of lynching provided in the Congress or a defense at all. Uh, that should be a federal crime, and if a lynching occurs, that is a crime against America. It really is, and I've I've no problem with that as a reform. I would support that. But when when you start with the efforts to limit the body armor that police could get, uh, when the the immunities that give police the ability to make hair trigger decisions uh, with you know the best of information that they have with them in in a particular context, I just don't know if, if we've got to eliminate those immunities. Now I think we should lash them to training. I think we should provide training. I think that, you know, the equities we have to balance in training are that uh, we've got a need to allow innovation at the local level so that policing can improve, balanced against a platform to share best practices. So I've been encouraged by what uh, some of my Republican and Democrat colleagues have talked about regarding creating platforms to share those best practices and allow uh, various, uh, various reactions. I think that some of these reforms, when it comes to better training, community policing, uh, and local execution, and when we when we think about those things, I think they're well reflected in the president's executive order. And here's the president uh, talking about the executive order he's signing today regarding policing. Today is about pursuing common sense and fighting, fighting for a cause like we seldom get the chance to fight for. We have to find common ground. We need leaders at every level of government who have the moral clarity to state these obvious facts. Americans believe we must support the brave men and women in blue who police our streets and keep us safe. Americans also believe we must improve accountability, increase transparency, and invest more resources in police training, recruiting, and community engagement. I think the president made a lot of progress here. Obviously, he can't do it alone. We need a Congress willing to step forward and seriously evaluate these issues, and I'll be doing that tomorrow in the House Judiciary Committee. The Black Lives Matter movement has been defrauded by a 67-year-old black music producer in Los Angeles. The story being broken by BuzzFeed News, Ryan Mack and Brianna Sachs. The Black Lives Matter Foundation raised millions. It's not affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement. So this guy, the 67-year-old music producer, sets up the Black Lives Matter Foundation on the GoFundMe platform. A group of students get together and donate money to it, believing that they're, they're supporting uh, the Black Lives Matter political cause, and then employees from Google, Microsoft, let's see what other companies, Apple, got together and raised millions of dollars for this foundation, which is just this one guy in LA. And when he was reached out to, asked if he would you know, turn the money over to the, the political protests, he replied that he would not. He said, no one owns the concept. 
adding that, and I'm quoting the story, as a black man, his life has been tainted by painful experiences with the police, including the 2011 death of his wife's ex-husband, allegedly at the hands of the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, so he's saying they killed my wife's ex-husband. Uh, he believes that to be the case. And so he is keeping the north of $4 million that has been given to the Black Lives Matter Foundation. But I guess the other Black Lives Matter folks are, are not happy. They're trying to get the funds frozen and they would like them redirected. I remember when this happened in 2010 following the Tea Party movement. No one really owned the Tea Party. It was a very organic movement of people who were frustrated at a non-responsive government. And everyone was trying to you know, build the best Tea Party donor list, build the best Tea Party organizing platform. And like every consultant in Washington uh, claimed that they spoke for the Tea Party and that they knew all the Tea Party's leadership. And the reality was there were a lot of people who became millionaires just by sort of capitalizing on that branding, selling merchandise, and uh, building and renting lists. So I suspect the same thing will happen with this uh, with this Black Lives Matter uh, uh, experience that we're going through. And uh, gosh, what a what a world! I uh, I don't know if he's if he's going to get the four million, but he thinks he's entitled to it. Good reporting from BuzzFeed News. College football coaches at major programs are even at risk of being canceled by their players as a consequence of their politics, maybe even their wardrobe. I don't believe that policing is inherently racist, though there likely are people who are racists who are in policing and any other number of industries. But there are elements of college football, particularly big program college football, I mean, that, that just make you wince. I mean, if you before we get into the specific case of the specific coach and the politics of cancel culture and on college campuses in particular right now, just look at, at the organizing principle of college football. You've got predominantly white management at the athletic director level in a lot of the athletic offices where people are making these big six-figure salaries. You've got predominantly management at the coaching level, particularly the head coaches. There's you know, a big drop-off between what these head coaches are making and what assistants are making uh, just about everywhere other than Clemson and Alabama. And then you have predominantly black labor in terms of the high-end college football talent. Uh, the fact that all of this wealth and value is generated by the labor force, transfers to management, and then, you know, the kids aren't getting paid. They're not getting to exploit their likeness for profit. Just seems fundamentally unfair. And, and the fact that there is a substantial racial element to who is creating the value and then who's taking the money off the table cannot be ignored. And so I get the fact that there are some tensions in college football uh, when it comes to these issues of racial divide in our country. And it seems to be an area where uh, where you're starting to see more, more politics, uh, more social advocacy. And, uh, you know, we can discuss whether that's for the better or for the worse. In this particular case in Oklahoma State, I think it's probably for the worse. Let, let's look at the attempted cancellation. So Mike Gundy, the coach of uh, Oklahoma State, has gone fishing in 
Texoma, Texoma, uh, and he is wearing a One America News t-shirt. Now, I've been on One America News. I know a lot of my colleagues will go on that news channel. There are good journalists there, uh, like uh, John Himes, who go out and really try to capture the perspective of the people engaged in lawmaking and share that. There's also some opinion on the show that is conservative, just like there's opinion on just about every hour of a lot of the mainstream media that is liberal. So OAN leans right, most of the media leans left. And so Chubba Hubbard, upon seeing a photo of Mike Gundy fishing, or after his fishing trip or before his fishing trip in his OAN shirt, tweets, I will not stand for this. This is completely insensitive to everything going on in society, and it's unacceptable. I will not be doing anything with Oklahoma State until things change, change in all caps. So Chubba Hubbard putting the pressure on, and this is not just, you know, uh, any any old player. He is likely their best player. He was the unanimous All-American and Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year, more than 20 touchdowns, rushed for about 2,000 yards, a big part of what they got going on. And it'll be interesting to see, like, to what extent this might drive some other changes in college football. Uh, I agree with the proposals from Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, to allow these players to benefit from the economic value that they create in developing a brand. And, you know, I called them kids earlier in the segment, but they're really not kids. I mean, they are they're adults. Like, by the time you go to college, you're a freaking adult. You're 18 years old, and you ought to be able to get some value out of what you create. So don't cancel your coaches, but cash in the checks because... It's quite something to see the athletic excellence displayed in college football. Uh, but let's just not ensure that we have such a constrained view of debate that we cancel someone's contributions to athletics because we don't like their fishing shirt. More and more, we're seeing police fed up with the demonization of their profession, the diminution of the contribution that they make to our safe communities, and they're starting to fight back, particularly against the politicians that are uh, not credible when talking about the work that we need to do to improve the relationship between law enforcement and those that they serve. So we got the Fraternal Order of Police President, John Catanzara, uh, defending Chicago police officers who were accused of lounging around while rioters broke into the office of Congressman Bobby Rush. Now he's got some pretty sharp words for Congressman Rush. Here is FOP President John Catanzara. Who's the coward? Bobby Rush still hasn't apologized from three years ago when he accused Chicago police officers of racial profiling during a traffic stop, which body can't prove he was an absolute liar. He's a piece of garbage. He hates the police. So as we work into policing reform in the Congress, I think it is critically important that we get the buy-in from police officers. You know, one of the things that really came to the surface in our discussions with the White House leading up to the development of the president's executive order being signed today is the need to have law enforcement buy-in. The Obama administration had these lofty goals that they would set all these guidelines and practices and that police departments would just rush to the embrace of the federal government's involvement in local policing and community policing. And the reality is I think there were only like 15 law enforcement agencies out of the tens of thousands around the country uh, that uh, were interested in adopting those recommendations. And so I think, again, this has got to be something that we do together. And I think the president's executive order is a great first start. 
and I think we can do even more in the Congress to improve policing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe so that you get updates with daily episodes. Give us a rating and a review. Let us know what you think. I'll be on tomorrow to let you know what I think with more hot takes.